dance on American Bandstand this Saturday. But dancing on Bandstand? He doesn't understand what it means. This is my Hey there, dreamers. I hope you're all having a wonderful week and you're looking forward to the weekend. I'm your host, Angela Bowen. Welcome to the first podcast episode of Dancing on Bandstand Season 1, Episode 1, The Pilot, which aired on September 29th, 2002. Here's the synopsis of the pilot episode. Meg Pryor's lifelong dream is to dance on the iconic 1960s of TV television series New American Bandstand from 1965 and along with her adventure along with her adventurous confidant Roxanne Bajarski the 15-year-old's persistence pays off when they find themselves on camera dancing amongst a variety of teen idols while his younger sister realizes his dreams. J.J. Pryor questions his own childhood ambitions as he struggles to decide between striving for a Notre Dame football scholarship and making a life-altering change. Family patriarch Jack Pryor, concerned with his children's defiant behavior as well as his wife Helen's influential new friends, Watches his idealistic family buckle under the era's social challenges on the eve of the decade's watershed event. We begin the episode, which takes place in November 1963, as we see a line of teenagers wrapped around the building waiting to be picked by the line guy to dance on bandstand. We hear the strains of Uptight by Stevie Wonder playing overhead. Our main protagonist, Meg Pryor, is among the kids waiting outside to be chosen to dance on American Bandstand, along with her best friend, Roxanne Bajarski. Just looking at the damn cold snow. Ugh, blah. I don't even want to think about it. The girls, sadly, don't get picked and have 12 minutes to get home so they can catch the show on TV. The girls decide on the bus because it's quicker. However, the bus is already taking off, but somehow the driver hears Roxanne's whistle and stops the bus and lets the girls on. Now we move on to the house, the Pryor house, where we see young 8-year-old Will coming down the stairs and he tells his mom that he's going to go outside to play football. And she reminds him to grab his coat. While all this is going on, we hear the youngest Pryor daughter Patty practicing her spelling words in preparation for the upcoming spelling bee competition. Helen, her mother, comes into the living room with a pencil and notepad to copy down a recipe on a cooking show she's watching as Patty spells out the next word. Too bad she can't pause live TV or rewind it. That would be helpful. That's what's sad about TV back then. Before we could pause and rewind and fast forward through commercials. If we missed something important, it was lost forever, especially before VCRs, when we could tape things off the TV. Then we go into the TV itself, to the television broadcasting studio, where the cooking show is being filmed, showing us the inner workings of television production and behind the scenes. Interestingly enough, that that show is taping in the same building as American Bandstand. We see the magic with cooking... As the host opens the oven, waiting impatiently for the assistant on the other side of the oven to hand her the completed casserole. But he's distracted by a cigar in the sports page. 
Ah, those were the days when you could smoke inside a public building. BT dubs, I don't smoke. He hands her the casserole as she takes it and shows it to the viewers at home as she smiles for the camera. This lady is a bitch. Just just letting you know that that, girl, that lady is not friendly. Just goes to show that the persona of what is perceived on screen doesn't always match up with the actual person's personality in real life. Now we move on to prior TV and radio as we see Jack, head of the prior family, a boy asks if they can watch it in color, the the show that they're watching, and Jack explains to him the cooking show is in black and white. Then the boy tells Jack that the commercials are in color. Jack tells the group of five kids that their home is in color and to go home. Dang, kids have nothing better to do than hang around a store watching TV when they probably already own one at home. The same kid whines to Jack, asking if they can at least stay to watch Bandstand. Jack gives him a dime to call his parents and to tell them to come down and buy a television set in color. I'd be like, I'm not a damn babysitter. Go home. I've got four kids at home and this is my quiet time away from them. Jack goes over to one of his employees, Eddie, who's holding a portable radio, and tells him for selling one of the newer, smaller models, which he's holding, if a customer asks, Tell them it's good for an Eagles game or down at the shore. Eddie asks Jack when the scouts are going to look at JJ. Jack informs him in two weeks because JJ still got those out patterns to work on. And after that, it's hopefully on to Notre Dame as long as he gets a scholarship. Now we head over to the football field where JJ and his teammates are working on plays and drills for the upcoming game. Then we see JJ's girlfriend, Beth Mason, off to the side near the parking lot, waving and calling out to JJ, blowing a kiss to him, and he catches it. Aw, teenage love in the 60s is so cute. I mean, I may be married, but even I'm crushing on JJ. He is so dreamy. He is so cute. Now we're back on the set of the cooking show for a split second as the show goes off the air. We see the perky host of the cooking show is actually a major bitch who screams how she hates the show. Well, find something else then, lady. I'm sure there are plenty of other women who would gladly step over you in order to take over. So be happy that you're on TV. Then we head back to Ro Roxanne and Meg as they get off the bus and race to get home in the freezing November weather so they can catch the openings of Bandstand. Then we cut back to the inner workings of Bandstand as they get ready to go on the air. Then we hear back to the girls again. A lot of cut back. A lot of cutting back from here to this scene to that scene. Now we're back to Bandstand and we're introduced to the show's producer, Michael Brooks, played by actor Joe Lawrence, or as many people of the 90s knew him as Joey Lawrence from Blossom fame and the eldest of the Lawrence brothers. In this show, however, he plays a straight-laced, no-nonsense producer. He checks on the kids in the audience, making sure he's got the kids from East Catholic and Westchester High in the stands. Wait a minute. Megan Roxanne are from East Catholic. They should be there. Megan Roxanne run up the sidewalk to their house as Will jokes, telling them they're not going to make it. They're going to be late for the show. As the girls rush inside the house, we cut back to the studio as they're counting down until they go live. Getting the mic set 
up in position and queuing up the soundboard. The girls come into the house as Helen gets ready to turn the TV off and Meg yells at her mom to leave it on because bandstand is starting. Wow, Helen doesn't already know it's bandstand time? You'd think it was a daily routine every day at 4 o'clock or whenever the hell it comes on. Boom, she's there. Parked in front of the TV, ready to show off her sweet-ass dance moves. She's got it down to a science there, that Meg does. We see at the studio the sign for applause lights up, informing the audience to clap. And then the announcer calls Dick Clark on stage and hands him the long microphone. And we see on the little black-and-white TV in the studio actual footage from the real American Bandstand show as the actor playing Dick Clark on screen or on the stage, acts out what is happening on the small screen. The show gets started as Martha and the Vandals come out and perform the song Heat Wave. As the song continues, Meg and Roxanne start grooving to the beat as they move into the living room from where they were sitting. Then they really get into it. Helen watches from the doorway with a smile on her face. Then we cut to JJ on the football field, waving to Beth. Then we jump back into the fray. Then he, after he waves to her, he jumps back into the fray of the football game, the football practice. Then it comes back to Will outside, tossing the football up and down. Then we see the kids in Jack's store, crowding around the TV, grooving in time to the music as Jack was, walks past them, grousing and probably telling them to go home. Then we cut back to the house where Helen and Patty are getting in on the dancing action too. They can't help it. The song just makes it impossible to not get up and dance. Then the camera focuses on Meg as she just stops and looks like this is the moment. I was born to dance. This is my calling. Then the theme, the theme song comes on. Dang, that was one long cold open. But then again, this is the pilot, so all the major players or characters have to be introduced. As the theme song, after the theme song, we go back to the outside of the house and where on the sidewalk Jack has come home from work and is tossing the football back and forth to Will. When Jack throws it to Will, he fumbles and goes to grab it off the ground. The camera pulls back, and here we see Will wearing his leg brace, which is due to him um, contracting the polio virus. This is after Jack praises him, telling him that the family will soon have two football stars going to Notre Dame. I feel bad that they don't have a big backyard to play in. They have to settle for the sidewalk or the street. Looks like they live in a, like a city uh, suburb, possibly. Or just outside the city. Meg comes outside to announce that dinner is ready to her dad and Will. That's when we see a sweet dad moment as Jack grabs Will and throws him over his shoulder, carrying him inside. We see the whole family, also with Roxanne and Beth, sitting around the dinner table. Talk about football and Patty spelling anything and everything that comes out of someone's mouth. Okay, Patty, we get it. You're apparently the best speller in the whole house. Hell, maybe all, even all of Pennsylvania. You can stop anytime now. JJ mentions casually that he's sick of football, and Jack, being the strict father of the 60s, latches onto that comment like a pit bull on a steak. Beth luckily changes the subject fast, asking Patty about the spelling bee semifinals and where it will be held. Patty tells her in two weeks at high school. What high school? I thought East Catholic was one giant school for all ages. Kids like 
you know, the kids at uh, Middlesex School in the movie Donnie Darko, they all went to the same school, elementary, junior high, and high school. All five prior kids, you know, I thought they went to East Catholic, but later on I'll, I'll realize that maybe they don't all go to it. That maybe Will and Patty go to a different, uh, different school. All right. We have eight people at the table with all eight voices shouting to be heard over the other. Wow, big families and their friends. Even though it's a family of six, my dad had five bro my dad had five brothers and three sisters. My mom had eight sisters and one brother. So this isn't as bad as that might have been. Jack's attempts Jack attempts once again to bring up football with JJ telling him he better not be giving attitude to his coach. Helen switches the topic of conversation quickly, asking Beth if her parents are in Monaco. And Beth tells her yes, and states how her mom says, If heaven's where you go if you're good while you're on earth, then Monaco's where you go when you're in heaven. Meg throws out, I wonder where you go if you're good in Monaco. Jack keeps on JJ asking what he means by fed up with football. You know what, Jack? Why don't you save that conversation for after dinner? The kids don't need to see or hear you lay into JJ while they're trying to eat. Not to mention, you keep having to repeat yourself as well as shout to be heard over everyone else. Save everyone the grief and just wait on it. Even JJ tells his dad it's nothing and to let it go. Yes, Jack, let it go. Let it go. Apparently, he's never heard of the term a figure of speech. JJ could just be blowing off steam. I mean, it's not like he's Dan, uh, Nathan Scott and Jack's Dan Scott from One Tree Hill. Talk about a bad father-son relationship there. Although Jack really keeps pressing the issue of football. Roxanne asked Beth if her parents went away for their anniversary and how they seem really romantic for married people. Roxanne brings up the idea of Beth's parents coming back from their vacation with a new baby, and Beth informs them that her mother is on quote-unquote the pill. This is a taboo topic, especially back in the 60s, as well as at the dinner table. Will asks how will they get a baby, and this prompts Jack to say, that'll do, as in, okay, that's enough, talk about the subject. Will asks what the pill is, and Patty goes to tell him, but Jack cuts her off, telling her, That'll do! More loudly. There's no pill, and there's no baby Mason, and how this is basically is not dinner table conversation. Did anyone have that growing up in their house at the dinner table? There was such a thing as appropriate dinner conversation? I don't remember being too censored at the dinner table growing up. Just being told not to talk about gross stuff during dinner, like boogers or whatever the heck. Not that I would talk about that a lot. Patty breaks uncomfortable silence as she spells the word conversation, causing everyone at the table to chuckle in relief. Even Jack. Then upstairs in Meg's room, she and Roxanne engage in small girl talk, gossiping about a mean girl, Gina Roselli, who's in school with them, and wondering why all the boys like her. Well, Meg wonders this. Roxanne points out it's because she's got large boobs, and she puts out. Apparently. Roxanne's a smoker as she hangs out by an open window blowing smoke into the night air as she tells Meg of her latest makeout conquest with a boy, telling her how he smells like limes. Well, at least it's not B.O., Roxanne, because that would be nasty. Patty complains to them out in the hall that the door is locked and Meg rushes over 
to Roxanne fanning her with the sleeve of a record. And then opens the door for Nosy Patty who asks what they're doing in there. Meg tells her to get what she needs and leave. So Patty grabs a pencil and tells Meg that their mom said she has to be nicer to her. Meg keeps going on about this damn girl Gina Roselli, and I'm over here like I really could give two fucks about this girl. And I think Roxanne feels the same way. Meg is so worried about going through life with nothing special ever happening to her. Well, in the 60s, what else was there to worry about if you were a teenage girl? Roxanne chills, cheers her up by telling Meg she is, she is special. And she asks how, and Roxanne, unable to think of a real response, just smiles and says, Well, you're nice. Nice? Meg scoffs. If I were to die tomorrow, what would people say about me? And from outside the door, we hear Patty say, Good riddance. And then she claims she wasn't listening. Bullshit, Patty. You timed that response at the at the perfect time. You, uh, hey. Now we're in the kitchen as Helen is drying dishes and Jack, still hungry, helps himself to something in the fridge. And Helen remarks how of course he is hungry because they just had dinner. Jack looks around asking if they're alone at the moment. Well, I guess leftovers aren't the only thing he's hungry for, am I right? Can I get a booyah over here? Jack comes up behind Helen, kissing her on the cheek, trying to entice her into more. Then he mentions how the doctor said they could try again now that it's been a couple months. Helen hesitates like she wants to say something, but instead kisses him back. Then we hear Meg and Patty fighting upstairs, and Jack tells Helen they gotta get the girls their own rooms. Now, it's not said completely yet, but the way Jack mentions the doctor said they can try again in a couple months, I believe he's referring to a recent miscarriage. Will, I believe, has to be about eight, maybe. So, is this the first time they tried to conceive? Or have they been trying over eight years unsuccessfully? They're both Catholic, so I know they don't believe in birth control, or at least Jack doesn't. Now we're outside the house again with Beth and JJ as they lean back against her car. She's wearing his letterman jacket and telling him how the East Catholic girls fawn all over him, saying how cute he is. He tells her that's not fawning, it's cheering. But then he tells her he has to cut their time short because of an upcoming test on European history he has to study for. Beth tells him that Notre Dame is just interested in his football skills, not whether or not he knows the Treaty of Versailles. They just want him to play football. Yes, that's true, Beth, but he has to get good grades to continue to be eligible to play. He tells her to call him when she gets home so he knows she got home safe. She calls him back over, handing him his jacket, and he kisses her goodbye. Now, the next day, we see Helen at a woman's book club in the afternoon while the kids are at school. This book club has a table spread full of different foods and desserts, not to mention it's full of board and by, uh, sorry guys, not to mention it's full of board and by the looks of it, housewives, or however, I don't know what the heck I was saying when I... Yeah, anyway, um, new to the club, a woman named Rebecca makes a suggestion of reading a controversial book, Mary McCarthy's The Group, which is 
about how in 1933, eight young female friends graduate from Vassar College. The book describes these women's lives post-graduation, beginning with the marriage of one of the friends, Kay Strong, and ending with her funeral in 1940. I'm sorry if no one's read it. That's a spoiler. Each character struggles with different issues, including sexism in the workplace, child-rearing, financial difficulties, family crises, and sexual relationships. Nearly all the women's issues involve the men in their lives, fathers, employers, lovers, or husbands. As highly educated women from affluent backgrounds, they must strive for autonomy and independence in a time when a woman's role is still largely restricted to marriage and childbirth. The plot is influenced by the political and economic atmosphere of the time. Over the course of the book, the readers learn about the women's views on contraception, love, sex, socialism, and psychoanalysis. And the head of the club tells her they follow the book club newsletter. Oh, jeez. These women, ladies, sound like the type of people that don't read anything until it gets an Oprah-approved sticker on it. Rebecca goes on to say how the book is talking about them, as in women, childbearing women, housewives, wondering if there's something more for them than the roles they've taken on, mother and wife, and the group. The group of women just balk at this. The head of the book club just smiles as she says, it sounds absolutely, absolutely depressing. Fuck you, lady. Your life is depressing. Try thinking outside the box for a change. I know, I know. It's the 60s conformity and all that jazz. And being resigned to life and all that. Try thinking outside the social norm for once, ladies. Like this lady, Rebecca. She's a pioneer, paving the way for other free-thinking women, like Helen, who's become intrigued by Rebecca's logic. Helen speaks up in defense of Rebecca, saying maybe it'd be more depressing if you never stopped to ask. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. The lady just claps her hands, bringing everything to order, and says next month they'll read The Shoes of a Fisherman. Now, I just looked that up when I was doing research. It doesn't seem like a book women would be interested in. It sounds more like a Tom Clancy action book centered around World War II and a prison camp. What if... May, I may ask, is this newsletter they subscribe to and seem to live their life by? Isn't there a book club newsletter for women? How many books were written for women in the 60s, I wonder? Now it's after school and Megan and Roxanne are back outside of the TV studio waiting to be picked by the line guy for bandstand. And sadly, they are passed over once again. Suddenly, out of nowhere, guess who walks by? Dreamboat, Jimmy Riley, Meg's TV star crush. Uh, Meg is like, <gasps> Jimmy Riley! As she says his name to Roxanne. I'm surprised he didn't turn around. She says it so loudly. But he seems oblivious and high five slash hugs the line guy. <clears throat> what the hell is a line guy's protocol for picking people? Meg and Roxanne are fresh-faced pretty girls who could sh or should be on bandstand. Then we move on to, I'm guessing, the next day because Meg is at band practice playing the clarinet. I actually did look this up to make sure I was calling it the right instrument, and I was right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Roxanne comes up to Meg as she's practicing. I don't know. What class is Roxanne supposed to be in? Is she in gym? Because the kids are all practicing band in gym. I don't know what other kids are doing, but anyway. 
She pulls her aside and asks her to guess what she'll be doing Saturday. Meg has Roxanne just tell her, and she says how she'll be on bandstand with all the stars and singers. Meg wants to know how she did it, and Roxanne hints how she made out with the line guy. Ew, that guy? Well, I guess you do what you gotta do to get on that show. Meg says she can't. Because she has to go see Patty at the semi-final spelling bee. So, two weeks have passed since the first dinner table scene. Okay. <clears throat> I'm sorry um, for the coughing and everything, by the way. Roxanne teases Meg how she'll just go alone and dance with all the cute boys on bandstand. Tony DeLuca and that cute little Jimmy Riley. Meg tells Roxanne she'll try to ask her dad. Uh, Meg, you know your dad. He's not saying yes anytime in the near future to that. Roxanne mentions how they've been waiting in line every week for the last six weeks. Holy crap! Roxanne, you should have made out with this guy sooner. <laughs> you could have, like, saved yourself some time. Meg gets called back over to continue rehearsing, and Roxanne makes a hilarious exit. As she's like, skipping through the line of, like, there's a path there that the band people have made, and she's, like, just skipping, la, 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 la. It was kind of funny. <laughs> All right, now it's the second dinner table scene. Oh, boy, and what do we start with? Oh, yes, Patty and her damn spelling again. Hey, Patty, I'll give you $5 if you stop and never spell in this house again. Meg tries to talk to her dad about bandstand. Hey, uh, Meg, why don't you wait till after dinner when you can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him? I do, however, agree with Jack on one thing, though. That book club lady should see a psychiatrist because she does have a screw loose. She's a damn nut. Beth, who's back for dinner again, does she eat with him every night? She tells, the, tells him how lots of people are in psychoanalysis. Oh, right, because seeing a psychiatrist was a new thing back then, or people, especially Jack, seemed opposed to. He asks her to give suggestions, and she mentions that her mother is in, uh, seeing a psychiatrist, or therapy, or whatever. Wow, here we go. I can feel debate simmering and about to boil over. Jack tells Beth that if her mother has some emotional troubles... Does it have to be emotional, though? I guess, maybe. If it's thoughts and feelings in your head and you can't separate them. Beth balks at this term, emotional troubles? Well, Beth, how about you save your family issues from being discussed by not bringing them up because you're just inviting unwelcome, unwelcomed commentary. I'm sorry if there's noise in the background. I just opened the door to let a little, uh, little air in here. Quinn was wanting me to. Like, it's too warm and stuffy inside. Alright, Meg yells at everyone to be quiet, then tells... Then tells, not asks, her dad that she and Roxanne are dancing on bandstand on Saturday. But he quickly vetoes that idea as easily as he asks someone to pass the potatoes. Meg starts asking why not, and... Tells how she does stuff around the house, and mainly how she deserves to dance on bandstand. Helen suggests that they talk about it after dinner. Jack tells them they can talk about it till the Phillies win the pennant. She's not dancing on that show. Jack asks JJ how football is, and JJ tells him he quit. 
What the hell? Why did that happen? Did I miss something here? Let me go back. Alright. So I did go back. Alright. My guess is it already happened happened off screen because I didn't see anything. Just him playing football. Nothing more. Beth looks shocked as she chastises JJ and Jack is like, excuse me? JJ tells Jack that they had a conversation about this during the summer and maybe Jack wasn't listening. J Jack points at JJ, point blank, you are not quitting the team. JJ tells him it's too late. Yeah, like, it's done. It can't be undone. Jack can't exactly control JJ's actions. How long has JJ been playing football? Since Pee-wee's? Why quit in your senior year, though? Just finish out the season. Get that scholarship and you can do whatever the hell you want down the line. Jack looks at the rest of his family asking, What is going on in this house? I understand he wants control and order over his family, but Jack, they're not mindless drones you can control and bend to your will. They're human beings with thoughts and feelings, hopes and dreams, which may not line up with your ideals. The rest of the family just looks down and just looks down at their plates, embarrassed. Then he verbally attacks Beth, asking if this was her idea. Pardon me? She asks, shocked. JJ quickly comes to her defense and tells him it wasn't Beth. Believe it or not, JJ has a mind of his own and can make his own decisions. Jack continues railing at Beth how some people don't have mon the money it takes to go to college, some people need the scholarship they get playing football and not just getting them for their smarts. <laughs> if I were Beth, this would be the last family dinner I ever attend. She looks at Mrs. Pryor, thanking her for dinner, and leaves JJ as he tries to call her back. Yeah, I wouldn't have stayed to have shit thrown in my face either. The eldest Pryor kids yell at Jack, telling him he doesn't get it, and they leave the table in a huff. Now it's just poor Will left at the table with his parents because Patty was excused earlier to go study. Will asks if this means they won't be having dessert, and Hel Helen leans forward to reassuredly squeeze his shoulder. Now it's the next day and we're in the prior store, TV and radio store, we see JFK and Jackie Kennedy on the TV. Helen comes in because Jack forgot his lunch and he notices the book she's holding, entitled The Group, which is the book that Rebecca from the, the book club was talking about. Ah, so she did pick up that book on Rebecca's advice. Good for her. Helen shows Jack the new coat she bought for Patty because she's growing, and Jack jokes how they should stop feeding them. Then he adds how if the next one's a, not a girl, Will will be happy with this. Will not be happy with ha this hand-me-down. Maybe Helen can get Patty a coat that's a couple sizes too big. That way, it'll last longer as she grows into it, thus saving money in the long run. That's just my take on it. Helen starts in how she's been thinking about not wanting to have another baby. I mean, she doesn't, uh, say that. It's just, she's basically thinking about what he's saying and everything like that. Especially, you know, after the miscarriage that they both went through. Whoa, Helen, this is Jack's work. This is not the time or the place to bring that up. Which, he does tell her exactly that. I'd be like, fine, I'll bring it up later at, say, 2 a.m. when you're trying to sleep. Back at the house, Helen and Meg are talking about bandstand, and Meg tells her mom how it means, how much it means to her to be able to dance on the show, and her dad just doesn't get it. Meg talks about the kids and what they will think about her if they saw her dancing on the show. 
So it's about getting popular. Okay, Meg, I'm still not sold on the idea. Try another approach. What if I met a boy on the show? She tells her mom, and this is where I hold up my hand saying, okay, stop right there. Helen just looks at her like, really, this is how you're going to try to convince me? Luckily, Meg stops herself and decides to try the guilt tactic, asking her mom if there was ever anything in her life that she wanted so badly it hurt. Wow, she wants it so badly it hurts? Man. I've never, well, I shouldn't say I've never wanted something so badly that it hurt, but she's a kid. She thinks for a beat. Turns to Meg and tells her she will think about it and talk to Jack. Then Meg excitedly wraps her mom in a hug, but Helen tells her the final say still lies with Jack. Now the family is at a pep rally for the football team. We see JJ and Jack in a heated argument and they both walk out of the gym in a huff to continue their conversation somewhere else. As Meg nervously watches while playing the clarinet in the band. Jack and JJ find an empty room, which looks to be a shop class. Why is this room not locked up if school is not in session? People could be copulating in there. They could be making out. They could be doing other things. Unmentionable, unspeakable things. JJ yells at Jack how the col that colleges only want him if, they, if he'll play ball for them. And I don't, seriously, I don't see the problem here. It's a way in. They can do whatever afterward. I mean, you're not going into the NFL. JJ s s says it hasn't always been his dream, and Jack tells him they've been talking about football since he was in diapers. JJ mentions how President Kennedy says it's time for new dreams and new frontiers. Jack tells JJ that President Kennedy, who went to college and loves football, holding him up as an example. They both get into a screaming match as Jack tells JJ he's going to college and JJ screams back that he's not. Jack goes on to say that JJ has a chance to be great, a tailback, an astronaut, or whatever the hell. And he knows that going to Notre Dame will give him everything. But it'll give him... A May not give him everything, but it'll give him a chance at least. Yes, JJ, it's just a foot in the door. That's it. You act like you're signing your life away here. Jack tells him he won't under he won't stand by and watch JJ piss away his one chance. And JJ, who looks like he's on the verge of tears, looks at his father defiantly and tells him it's not up to him. And he walks away. As JJ leaves the room we see Helen as she looks at Jack who's got his arms spread out like what else can I say and she tells him that she will try to talk to him we see Helen walking down the stairs to him as he hangs up a payphone probably trying to call Beth and apologize for his father payphones don't see those much anymore do we he looks at Helen who says Beth won't take his calls and won't call him back and how his dad has ruined it for him and Beth Give her time, JJ, okay? She'll come around. Just breathe. Just calm down. Helen tells him the same thing. She'll come around. She lifts his chin to look at her and tells him, I know it's hard, Jack. Doing something you don't want to do. She refers to him by his given name. He says she doesn't understand and she tells him she knows more about it than he thinks. He tells her to list something and she tells him cooking. He looks at her and says, come on, mom, you love to cook. She just looks at him like, 
Are you serious? Yeah, I love cooking for a family of six, seven days a week. I'm a regular Chef Ramsay over here. She tells him sometimes. Then there are others when she doesn't feel like it at all. And on those nights, I make spaghettios. I mean tuna casserole. <laughs> JJ just looks at her. Mom, we have that all the time. She smirks at him like, exactly. See my point? She tells him she's on his side and so is Jack. Then when JJ starts to pull away, she takes him by the shoulders and tells him it's just a way in. And once he's there, he can do anything he wants. JJ thinks by giving in and playing football, that's just giving Jack his way. Then he walks away from his mom. That Saturday, Megan Roxanne concoct a plan of saying they're studying at the library. Then they wait for the bus to take them to bandstand. They end up switching clothes. That way they can give Meg a more wowza factor. They start taking off their tops and skirts while waiting for the bus in freaking public in November. And there's some skeevy old dude smoking a pipe gawking at them. Roxanne, full of moxie, this girl, asks the guy, You never seen a bra before? Then tells him to turn around. The girls actually got in. The line guy kept his word. They go sit up in the stands as the show gets ready to start. Michael, the producer, tells the newbies just to follow the steps of the regulars. Then the girls spot Jimmy Riley and Tony DeLuca, who Roxanne immediately calls dibs on. I notice how Michael Brooks, the producer, gives Dick Clark advice on hand how to handle the Beach Boys. When he does the interview, he basically tells him to just stick with Brian Wilson because Mike Love is a bit, a bit of a wild card. In the stands, Meg thanks Roxanne once again for getting them on the show as the Beach Boys come on and perform Don't Worry Baby. I love this song. I, re- I, love, I love the slow ballads of the Beach Boys. That one, Surfer Girl, In My Room, those are my favorites. I mean, I like Kokomo, too, even though that didn't come out until, like, the late 80s, but... Now we come back to Jack's store, and the kids are watching Bandstand, and the men are watching the football game on one of the TVs. As Jack's on the payphone getting the updated results on Patty's Spelling Bee Finals, Jack mentions the word evocative and tells Helen to call him back at... He says how evocative is, you know, that's a pretty tough word. Like, not really. Not like a... 12 or 15 letter word. He tells the people in the store that out of the 12 other kids participating, all except three are older than Patty. Dick Clark announces it's Lady's Choice for the group, the Chiffons, that sing the song One Fine Day. I think they're just pumping this music in from somewhere because I think the Beach Boys were the main event that was performing. Roxanne sets her sights on Tony DeLuca and heads down the bleachers to dance with him. He's busy talking to the camera guy as Roxanne pulls him by the arm to dance with her. He just looks at her at first, surprised that she did that, but then he just goes with it and starts dancing. Roxanne, you go, girl. She knows what she wants and she goes for it. Meg just sits there in the stands, mouth agape in surprise. Roxanne just mouths back to Meg that she's on TV. Now we're in the school in the boys' bathroom, and we get a shot of JJ and Will as they wash their hands. JJ tries to explain to to Will why he doesn't want to play football anymore. He asks Will, what if he had to play football every day all the time? 
how would he feel then? Will just shrugs, says that'd be great to him. So JJ tries another approach and asks, what if he had to take out the garbage three times a day? Will tells him he'd have to do it because it's dad and he makes the rules. Besides, I hate taking out the garbage and you love football. Will tells him, I guess it's not as much fun if someone's... Oh, um, sorry. I guess it's not as much fun if someone's making you play, JJ explains to him. JJ shoots the paper towel into the wastebasket and Will does the same thing. I love their brotherly bond, how Will wants to be just like his older brother. Roxanne goes to sit up with Meg and she tells Roxanne how she wishes they could just stop time and live in this moment forever. How it stinks they'll have to go back to their ordinary lives after the show's over. Tony DeLuca calls up to Roxanne and she just looks at Meg like, two dances with this guy and he acts like he owns me. I already hate this guy. Then she goes down to dance with him. Well, that got old fast, huh? <laughs> Dancing in the... Street by Martha and the Vandells is up next. Suddenly, Meg is taken by surprise when Jimmy Riley comes up to her and asks her to dance. She tells him sh she would love to. Her name is Meg Pryor and she goes to East Catholic. He jokes and tells her, this isn't roll call. He just, he says, just dance with me, Meg Pryor from East Catholic. One of the camera directors from inside the booth notices Jimmy Riley dancing with Michael's little cutie. Uh, I didn't get that at all. Michael Brooks hadn't even met Meg. Anyway, he tells the, cam the guy outside operating camera 2 to keep a lens on her. Yeah, she's a pretty young girl. Now we're back in Jack's store and someone calls him over to the football game. And someone tells him about the new instant replay that they've been talking about. Which will allow people at home to see big football plays played over again. One of the kids alerts Jack to the TV where he sees Meg dancing on bandstand. Uh oh, not good. Meg will be hearing about this at the dinner table tonight. Meg hangs out behind the backstage in the hall looking at the call list. Or the cast list. Or... And that's where she meets Michael Brooks, who tells her she can take it to remember her first time dancing on bandstand. He asks if she had a good time, and she tells him good isn't the word for it. She tells him that she can't imagine anything she'll ever do that'll be more important. So, exactly what she wants to do all the time. Yes, you want to be on TV? Be on it, around it, the lights, the music, Mr. Clark, the kids, the Beach Boys, everything. She stops herself embarrassed and says it must sound silly to him. He tells her no. That actually sounds a lot like me on my first day. He introduces himself as Michael Brooks, the associate producer of the show. And Meg introduces herself. On the city bus, Meg tells all this to Roxanne after she says he gave her his number... And she asks if she... Roxanne asks if she kissed him. Meg tells her, no, he's at least 25. They end up swapping clothes on the bus ride home, so their parents won't be... Her parents won't be suspicious. All the people on the bus, and it is a packed bus, BT-dubs, turn to look at them. You couldn't do that in a public place nowadays. Certainly not on a crowded city bus. Here, let me take my shirt off, teenage girl. In front of all these people. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, no. The girls rush home as everyone is seated for dinner, telling them they were running late at the library. Patty tells everyone she made it to finals in the spelling bee. 
JJ arrives home and Helen asks if he wants dinner, but he tells her he already ate as he heads to his room. Jack tells, or Jack asks how their studying went, and Meg tells them they lost track of time studying the Battle of Bull Run. And Roxanne adds how they broke for lunch at 1.15 and she had a tuna melt. 1 p.m. for lunch? That's late. To me, that's late. I usually, Jeremy, my husband, and I, we... We usually have dinner, or <laughs> we have lunch around 11. That's as early as he will go. The phone rings and Meg tries to excuse herself to get it, but Helen tells her that she'll get it. Jack then tells Meg that someone at the store swears they saw her, or a lookalike, dancing on bandstand today. Roxanne mentions how everyone has a twin somewhere, and Jack tells Meg how lucky for her her twin must live right here in Philadelphia. Helen then calls to Meg, letting her know the phone is for her. It's Michael Brooks. For the show Meg didn't dance on today, Helen informs her. He asks if she had a good time dancing on the show, and she tells him she did. He tells her that's good, because we'd like you to come back. Not understanding, Meg asks him to repeat himself, and he tells her that they would like her to come back and dance as a regular on bandstand. Meg has him hold on the line and tells her mother the truth about dancing on the show and with Jimmy Riley and how Michael Brooks, the associate producer, wants her to come back and dance as a regular on the show. Meg tries, but to no avail, to have Helen speak to Jack on her behalf, and Helen tells her, no, you will have to do this yourself. The next morning, Jack is making breakfast as he and Meg discuss her being punished for dancing on the show and lying about it. As they get ready for church, Jack decides to stay home to work on a rocking chair he's been working on for who knows how long. As the kids are walking towards the church, JJ and Meg have a little brother-sister moment as they bond over their frustration with Jack, not being able, you know, not letting Meg dance on bandstand and JJ with his football. This is nice. The other two kids chatting. JJ surprised that she finally got on the show and how he thought with Jack mad at Meg, he'd finally lay off JJ and Meg tells him she hoped for that too, only the other way around. Will looks so cute, dresses an altar boy in his cassock. The young girls spot Meg and immediately surround her because she was on bandstand and got to j dance with Jimmy Riley. Now we're in the garages. Jack is sanding the chair. Actually, he's not sanding the chair. I thought he was. Or maybe it, he was doing something, but I didn't think it was anything to do with the chair. Beth comes in to talk to him. Jack tells her that JJ is at church, and she tells him she actually came to talk to him. He turns down the radio. He tells her Helen spoke to him about dinner the other night and how the things he said to her may be what is causing the problems between her and JJ. Yeah, he doesn't come right out and apologize or admit he was wrong to lash out at her. He tells her he doesn't take back what he said, but he does wish he said them differently. Well, that's about as good of much of an apology as she's going to get out of him. She even asks, is this an apology? And he tells her it's the best he can do. Beth apologizes for walking out on dinner the other night, but she wasn't mad at him. Even though the things he said regarding her mother's therapy were extremely narrow-minded, and how he blamed her for JJ's quitting the football team, which was completely unfair. She goes on to tell him that she didn't tell him to quit the team, and how she loves watching him play. That's why she wasn't speaking to him. She tells him that JJ didn't tell her a thing, 
And she's his girlfriend. She wants to know what makes him happy. And if that means playing football for Notre Dame, she'll help make it happen. Jack smiles at her and says, Atta girl. Aww. She tells him if it means not going, then Jack can take it up in his own psychotherapy. He just looks at her and chuckles. JJ goes into church after the services are over and talks to his coach, who is also Father Hayden. Father Hayden tells JJ he'll let him back on the team, but he's got to do penance. That includes prayers and 150 tricep push-ups. He tells him, JJ tells him he does not want back on the team. And I just thought, yeah, if he's making him do 150 uh, tricep push-ups, his arms will be dead for playing. <laughs> J.J. tells Father Hayden outside that he loved playing football until it became more than that. It was his father, Notre Dame, and a scholarship. And it didn't feel the same anymore, and he didn't feel the same. He feels in his heart that it was right to, the right thing to do, quitting the team. Father Hayden tells him he's listened to all that J.J. has had to say and offers his advice. Father Hayden tells J.J., that he's wrong. It doesn't matter what he's feeling. What matters is his obligation to his parents and teammates and to the parish. Excuse me? What? So he's got an obligation. It's basically he's make he has to make the parish look good. Like, oh, we spent all this time with you and everything like that. It's like, basically, you owe us. You owe your team. You owe your parents. That's, that's not how that should work. I mean, yes, it's a commitment and everything, but don't see, like, you owe us to make us look good. JJ tries to interject, but Father Hayden stops him, telling him to put his feelings aside and come and play football. Then he walks away, leaving JJ to his thoughts. JJ comes home to find Beth sitting at the kitchen counter. They hug, and then Jack comes in to go and talk to Meg and Helen goes to bat for her telling Jack he should let her dance on the show and he tells her he's made up his mind as he heads up the stairs. Meg is flipping through her records and there's a knock at the door. Thinking that it's Patty she tells her to go away but it turns out it's Jack. He tells her he's disappointed in her about how she defied authority and danced on the show without his permission so he grounds her for two weeks and she's grounded for another four weeks for lying about it. That's doesn't that kind of seem, seem kind of harsh? Four weeks for lying, but two weeks for dancing on the show? Shouldn't it be, like, the other way around? Dancing on the show sounds more like a, a bigger offense than lying about it, but I don't know. Each their own, however they punish their kids. Even though he does say he knows it's important to her, he tells her she can go to school and she can go to church, and he waits a couple beats before he tells her, you can go to bandstand, but that's it. And you can go to bandstand, but that's it. At this, she jumps up and hugs him, thanking him. When he finally pries her off of him, he tells her, No, don't thank me. I'm punishing you. She calms right down and tries to keep a straight face, even though she's doing cartwheels on the inside. Helen goes out to the garage to try to continue the conversation she started with Jack at the store about having another baby. Again, he tells her maybe it's not the right time to talk about it. Yeah, of course. They can't talk about it during dinner. How would that work with the kids there? Not at the store. There's customers. So, when? When do we talk about it, she wants to know. Jack tells her he knows losing the baby was hard on her. And she tells him it was. But she doesn't want to have another baby. 
Helen starts to tear up as she tells him this. I can only imagine telling your spouse you no longer wish to have children, especially if they want to keep having them. It's hard to hear. Hearing this news, Jack sits down. He asks her what she wants, and she tells him she doesn't know. The look of anguish on her face is heartbreaking when she says this. Jack tells her what he always wanted is a yard with a little grass out front where his kids can play ball. Instead, they gotta play, basically, they gotta play in the street. He wants a, wanted a green sedan, he continues, his own business, which he has, two weeks down to the shore, and then someday, maybe a boat. And except for the boat, we got it all. Yeah, you know, I'd say that's good, Jack. But, he goes on, but Meg's unhappy, and JJ's unsatisfied, and now you. Jack, seriously, things aren't always going to be perfect. People change their minds. That's not on you. You have to let your kids be themselves. He looks at her sadly and asks, when did my dream become not enough? You know, and honestly, that's just it. Your dream, not theirs. Then Patty and Meg interrupt them, and they both have, you know, Helen and Jack both have to wipe their eyes and swipe at their nose because of the emotions that are coursing through them. Jack shuts down telling her they'll talk about it later or in his case probably never. Helen tells him it was a good thing letting Meg dance on the show. She turns to go. Before she leaves she turns and asks what kind of boat? And he tells her a 22 Newport with an inboard diesel a teak deck, an oil finish and a solid brass compass. The next day, Meg and Roxanne are in class as other classmates ask about who else is on bandstand. Roxanne tells them besides her and Meg, who cares? Little does Roxanne know she wasn't invited back, which is going to be pretty dang awkward in the next episode. Some girl comes into the class, tells them there's a special assembly in the auditorium. Then their teacher tells them to get up, you know, and, and head to the auditorium. It looks like a girl's, like, maybe sewing class or something that they're in, because there are no boys there, because the girl's like, oh, all the boys are already there. So they're separating them, I guess. They keep the girls separate from the boys and everything that they do in all the classes. But the principal comes in and tells them all to be seated. I think it's Father Hayden, JJ's football coach, and the pastor. He's all, well, he's also the pastor. He looks choked up as he tells them he has some bad news. A terrible thing has happened. President Kennedy has been shot. Meg puts a hand up to her mouth in shock, and then Roxanne hugs her. Then we see people gathered around a, the TVs that are probably outside the prior TV and radio store. They're also in shock. Then we cut back to the house and see Helen on the phone probably to Jack, and then Jack is also on the phone. Maybe they're on the phone to each other, maybe not, I'm not sure. We see an elementary school where Will is letting, is getting let out of school with, I thought there were other kids, I mean, unless he's waiting for someone to come get him. You know, I was under the impression originally that they all went to the same school, but I guess not. We just see Will. Was he waiting for someone to pick him up? Did all the other kids leave already? Patty comes by to get him, and they walk home together. All this time, the song Amazing Grace has been playing. I'm not liking this version, or who's singing it. It's just, uh, it's kind of weak. It's okay. Then we see JJ comforting Beth outside of school on the bleachers. We cut back to Meg and Roxanne in class, and Roxanne finally lets it out and breaks down and cries. 
It cycles through the individuals of the prior family members before the episode ends on the newscast announcing Kennedy's time of death. Jack and his employee close up the shop and head home. That's the end of the episode, everyone. Now it's time for my Meg's Record Collection Rating of the Week. I'm giving this episode 5 out of 5 records because it was a great start to a series against the backdrop of the 60s. The music of Bandstand, the introduction of the Pryor family, along with the event of JK, JFK's assassination as the world begins to unravel. I had a lot of fun while doing this episode. Granted, it took me a while to get through... And the future podcast episodes won't be nearly as long. You know, it was a lot to cover, being that it was the first episode. A lot of things that were going on, you know, with the introduction of the characters, all the side plots. This podcast is going to continue in September for the 15th wedding anniversary, and this will most likely be a bi-weekly, twice-a-month podcast, because I'm currently doing other three podca- uh, uh, three other podcasts at the moment. So, this episode will go up today, uh, Thursday, July 6th, and um, after that, we'll see, basically, it will come back in September, so I should have plenty of episodes already to record and ready to go by then. Alright, I hope you enjoyed this episode, I look forward to bringing you more in the, in, in September, and I will see you again. Uh, stay tuned to Instagram for trivia questions and uh, listener questions, and I'll give you a shout out on the podcast if you get them correctly. All right, have a wonderful weekend. Bye bye. <laughs>